Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the E-Tail East Trade Show in Boston on Tuesday, August 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott was unable to join us. So I am solo today, but I've made up for it by uh, cajoling a great guest to join us on the show. Uh, welcome today, Adam Callanan. He's the co-founder and CEO of Bottlekeeper. Uh, welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are super excited to have you. Uh, you have a great story, as listeners are going to get um, in just a minute. Uh, but for those that haven't already had the life-changing experience of owning a bottle keeper, can, what, what is the elevator pitch on bottle keeper? So it, it is a bit, admittedly, it's a bit challenging to just fully explain it. It is a very visual product, but I'll do my best. Uh, bottle keeper is, is effectively, it's a stainless steel bottle, like a water bottle that we've all seen for 20 years. And the base of that bottle screws off, and so the inside of the the body of that bottle is is insulated with neoprene, so that you can put a beer bottle inside the body of the bottle, screw the base back on. Um, there's a built-in bottle opener into the cap, uh, and it seals the enclosed bottle and does all these great things. So it helps to keep your beer bottle, which is now enclosed, much colder, much longer, and it's protected from what we say as gravity-induced explosions, a la when you drop your uh, beer bottle on a pool deck about a beach, etc. And broken glass is bad. Uh, so, so I have heard. So, um, if I called it a beer cozy on steroids, would that be offensive or is that? It's, I wouldn't call it offensive. I mean, okay. it's, a, I mean, it's much more. The, yeah. It's just so much more. <laughs> and the, the, you know, the beer cozy was invented in, in 1981 was the first patent for the, you know, super old school foam beer cozy. So it, uh, it was time, time for, for a redo. Time yeah. for an upgrade. Right. So we get massively better cold. We get the bottle protection, I, I'm not sure you market it this way, but there's potentially a stealth element to the product. That you I, know, we we focus pretty heavily on the keep it cold and protected. Um, and, yeah, fair. Leave it there. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, and I feel like most of our listeners have imagined that their dream job would be to be a CEO of a company in the adult beverage space. Um, so It's is pretty it, fun. I was going to ask, is it like, are you going to ruin it and say it sucks and you work like 80 hour weeks and it's super stressful. No, or you, I'm not nice. No, it's amazing. I mean, we, we were very, very intentional early on in starting this company. Uh, my co-founder and partner, Matt Campbell and I about doing, you know, my previous world was a lifestyle that was built around a business. And so in going into bottle keeper and launching it, I, I wanted to do the polar opposite and that was build a business around a lifestyle and my lifestyle Living in Southern California, I spent a lot of time in the water and on the beach and traveling with my wife. And so we built that mentality into the framework of the business, which even now, you know, we launched in 2013, even now, six plus years later, it's fun. I mean, it's really casual. It's really relaxed. We have, you know, our team has unlimited vacation. We have mandatory work from home Fridays because I literally, I was trying to get people to work from home on Fridays and they keep coming in. So now it's like, you got to work from home on Fridays. <laughs> So it's just, it's a very fun, casual, flexible, I mean, it's beer products. So we get to have a lot of fun with it. Uh, that, that is totally awesome. And I know you guys have a pretty funny origin story. Like how did you come up with this idea? Yeah. So, um, my cousin, again, co-founder partner, Matt was sitting on the beach 
drinking a beer out of a red party cup. It's 85 degrees outside. We know how the story goes, right? It's warm in four minutes and drinking a warm beer is about as fun as having a tooth pulled. So he, uh, at the same time, he's also a, a bit particular about drinking beer out of bottles. That's just his thing. He would always prefer to have a beer out of a bottle. So he's looking around. He sees people drinking out of just normal off-the-shelf water bottles, which are everywhere, particularly today, and thinks to himself, why can't I just take one of those and put a beer bottle inside of it? And really the only way to do that is by cutting it in half. So he went and purchased a bunch of off-the-shelf water bottles, a handful, and you know, vice-gripped them to a table, hacksawed them in half, cut up some old neoprene college koozies and super glued them inside and his favorite beer bottle fit perfectly. And what this did was it created an opportunity to keep that beer a lot colder, a lot longer while simultaneously protecting the bottle. Because again, he's on a beach. He lives in Phoenix, Arizona, has a pool. There's all these places where it's hot and glass, you know, kind of doesn't make sense. And this was a, the quick and easy solution to that problem. That is awesome. Um, so we made a product for that. Um, and I, uh, Heard a rumor that um, you you did a quick and dirty test to find out if there'd be customer demand for the product. Yeah, when when you know we started doing this together, we we partnered up in early 2013. We I was not admittedly super. I thought it was a really really cool product. It fit my lifestyle great, but I wasn't overly convinced, particularly having never been in the consumer product business before, that we could sell it, that we could get people interested enough in the product to sell it at a real price point, not a, this is a hobby price point, but a real price point with real margins. So, um, you know, I built a website, just a landing page with a video that I shot on a GoPro and plugged uh, an email capture system into it, MailChimp. And, you know, basically I spent $500 on Google AdWords and, and sent people to the website that just basically said, if you think this is cool and you want to know when it comes out, leave your email. And it converted reasonably well. I mean, it wasn't a 5%, but even at 1%, like, We'd at least prove that people that were, you know, were interested enough in it, not knowing what the price was to go on to the next phase, which for us was crowdfunding. Um, So first note, that is totally cool. It wouldn't have been that much earlier that it would have been super expensive and unfeasible to even do a basic test like that. No question. And that's when you look at these sorts of things, you know, you can, it's really, in hindsight, it's really easy to point at the the things that were really lucky. And one of those, this is the timing. I mean, had we tried to do this in 2008, it would have been a totally different story. Yeah. Um, and you're not the first entrepreneur on the show to say, hey, we we put up sort of a faux buying experience even before we knew how to make products. Um, in fact, I, I think uh, we had Tuft and Needle on the show and he literally had a buy button and, and took an order in the first day. That's awesome. Yeah, with, we, like, we didn't take it quite that far, but but I could I mean, there's a lot of value yeah. in, in doing that, particularly... I mean, he basically combined what was Frost Phase 1 and Phase 2. He combined that into one phase, which was, can you get people to enter their credit card information and click buy? Yep. Uh, so then uh, also not available five years earlier would have been that that crowd, crowdfunding component. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, Had you had any experience doing a crowdfunding product? No, or you I just- mean, I, was pre- I come from the medical world at that point, and Matt is a, also an entrepreneur but has been in the alternative fuel conversion space since college. Yep. So, so neither of like us have any experience in this Kickstarter stuff. or Indiegogo or one of those? We used of- Fundable. We actually got oh, declined okay. from Kickstarter. Um, at the time, they were, I guess, were focusing on art projects and things like that. So oh. I, I met somebody who was the founder CEO of Fundable, and uh, they were super helpful. And, I mean, that got us off on the right foot. Awesome. Um, so then uh, that's circa 2013, 2014. That was the f- about September 2013. 
was right. the beginning of the crowdfunding. It went on for two months, was really successful for us, not in the amount of funds raised. It wasn't super expensive to start this company. So that wasn't the point, but we, we set up, you know, a low goal. We more than tripled that goal. And it was a, the real proof of concept that we can get people to enter their credit card information and click buy and having these people not be like our parents and friends and family. Yep. Uh, but, it, and it certainly gave you some sort of market validation that you had a hundred percent. I mean, that, that is the validation, right? We had something people were interested in and were willing to pay real money for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now you, so now I assume you start tooling up and manufacturing, you fulfill those orders. Um, was it easy to grow organically from there or how did you sort no. of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was being slightly sarcastic. Yeah, it was not easy at all. I mean, it this was like a funny side project for almost a year. I mean, and not again, not because we didn't love it and think it was amazing. We just hadn't figured out how to do it yet. So in, yeah, we, we did that. I built a real website on, I think on WordPress with plugged in WooCommerce to it and used some funny drag and drop editor. Cause I don't know how to code. Yeah. Um, and we started taking pre-orders at the end of the crowdfunding cycle. So we had started doing some testing on actually being an e-commerce business in the fall. We shipped those orders in the first week of January, 2014, barely missing Christmas, which was awesome. And, um, just literally just fumbled along for eight months. I mean, we were doing two or $3,000 a month in revenue. I had two other kind of side project things I was doing. Matt's, you know, running his alt fuel conversion company. Um, still, we're still doing this. We're trying to do it. And we just hadn't figured out how to make it work yet. And something really important happened um, for us. And that was in, in about August of 2014, Facebook launched their video advertising platform. So I shot, a, you know, I, again, I'm not a videographer. I'm not I've never done this before. So I just took an off the shelf camera DSLR that I had from some previous trip and propped it up on a backpack in the sand and had this sort of demonstration video that was abusively long in today's standards of digital marketing, um, at least with respect to Facebook and things like that and put it on Facebook and it exploded. I mean, our revenues went from, you know, five or so thousand dollars in August to like 10 in September to 25 in October to 50 in November. Uh, November to 60 in the first seven days of December. And we sold out a product because we had no expectation that this was going to happen. Um, and that was, that was the point at which, you know, we were clearly earlier on, maybe in September, October, we were like, holy hell, this is actually working. And then it just continued to work because with Facebook, you can just keep putting money into it, particularly when you're at this smaller scale and you can achieve the same results. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so during that, that run up, as you started getting that heavy traction and those volumes started really getting up, uh, did I'm, did like WordPress break and all that sort of stuff? And did you have 100%. to yeah, mi <laughs> yeah. migrate, I'm assuming? Oh, to yeah. We were, we were in way over our heads. And by we, I mean me. I was responsible for the front end of the business, the tech, the branding, the marketing, all that stuff. Matt's responsible for the back end with the inventories, the manufacturing, our financials, all this important stuff. So, yeah, I was way in over my head. I mean, we – we couldn't ever get enough bandwidth to support the growth that we were doing. And we Band-Aid patched it for – a year, easily a year. We moved to Shopify, uh, which was one of the smarter things we ever did in the summer of 2015. Gotcha. Um, and then uh, uh, fast forward a couple of years and you guys were on Shark Tank. We were, yeah, in the November of last year. Uh, and uh, I'll put in the show notes, but it's like uh, season six, episode... Season 10. Oh, 10, oh, episode okay. six, it's, Yeah, 16? season 10. I think it's episode six. Six. Okay. Um, so so we'll put it in there. Um, 
before you get, even get on the show as a, a a regular follower, I sort of think Mark Cuban has an unbroken record of investing in every beer company that's been uh, Shark Tank. <laughs> there so, might be a theme there. So I don't know. I don't know if you targeted that at all, but just a side note. I yeah, he he had this great quote in a one of the publications that came out of it that was actually became the title of this article. There was something to the effect of every time I drink a beer, I I invest a million dollars. Well, I hope he's got a good ROI on that. That could be an awesome investment uh-huh. strategy if it's working. Um, so your show happened to have a guest shark, uh, A-Rod. And in the beginning of your pitch um, to demonstrate the protection element of beer keep, Bottle Keeper, you uh, handed him a baseball and let him throw a baseball yeah. at your products. And I'm actually thinking I would be in your shoes terrified at this moment because of – I make A-Rod look bad and he doesn't like hit it flush, like this could go totally sideways. So yeah. luckily there's no listeners on the show, so like this will never get out. Yeah, of course. Did of course. he nail it in the first take? He did. I yeah. mean the guy's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, like, I, I, it, it was surprising how – I mean he nailed a dead center in the middle, 60-plus miles an hour in a full business suit and dress shoes on a hardwood floor from 30 yards. Yeah, like, which – He drilled it. Yeah, I mean, he's the right guy to do it, but you still, yeah. it's, I feel like it's impressive nonetheless. Um, so you, you took a risk, it totally paid off. And, uh, on the show, you ultimately got a deal with, uh, Mark and Lori, um, at a, like, pretty meaningful valuation. Sure. One of the fun things to me is a lot of people come on that show very early revenue or pre revenue and, like, asking for sort of a wacky valuation and they get beat up. Um, I almost got the impression they felt like you were a little silly until they found out about your your existing revenue run rates, and then it, it became a different kind of conversation. Yeah, which I mean, all of that was is very very planned out, right? I mean, our I'm goal shocked. it wasn't. Yeah, it was, yeah, I know. <laughs> our, our goal wasn't to go on and, and look silly, but it was to go on and then get to the point where we're telling them revenue numbers and have them all sit up in their chairs. And even even with. And you get to structure all these things, right? Even with A-Rod throwing, we designed that around having A-Rod on the show. We didn't say we want to do this experiment and then all of a sudden we have A-Rod. It was what do we need to include in our pitch so that we can so that we can guarantee they will air our episode. Oh, and that's... it's like you have A-Rod throwing a ball on national television. There's no way they're not going to show yeah, that. Yeah, it's too uh, it, – that's brilliant. Um and I, I've been told by other uh, Shark Tank entrepreneurs that have been on the show that one of the things that can be frustrating is – uh, you don't actually know when your show is going to air. Oh, yeah. And so it can be like, again, you're likely to have a big bump in in demand from the show and demand planning and hardening your systems can all be a challenge. Um, in your case, you, I think you got a really lucky air date, did you not? We did. We aired the night before Cyber Monday. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. uh, tons of demand at a peak time um, in – uh, you were already on Shopify at that point, so did things hold up? And yeah, yeah. F- I mean, from a from a tech standpoint, yeah, every, everything did. I mean, the the fortunate thing for us in that experience was that we had already been in business for five or six years. We had already done millions of dollar in re- dollars in revenue. We had you know we had put all the pieces in place through other learning mistakes, and we were other, we've been on other TV shows prior to that, so that we had these huge bumps and things fell apart, and so we got to patch all those holes. In advance, and the other part was we had we worked this great deal with our manufacturing group, where they were basically they would create, um, I think it was it was up to ten containers of product on their dime, and basically hold them in a facility in the U.S. and we could draw from them as we wanted. So that really de-risked our inventories going into Shark Tank because you're right, we found out three weeks before it was going to air that it was going to air. 
Wow, that's awesome. Uh, in my distant past, um, we used to do some work with Oprah Winfrey, and like mm. early on in her list, she would literally put these entrepreneurs out yeah. of business because she like you create so much demand, and like so you literally had to invent all these new disciplines about how you handle Absolutely. this this one ridiculous spike in your business. Um, that's a first world problem, though, my friend. It is indeed. Um, so, so you're on the show. Uh, the product looks great. Like everyone sees it on the show. You get this nice bump, and I think you said like like a 300 percent increase in run rate. Do I have that right? Yeah, as of th- that night, um, and then clearly through Cyber Monday, we had we were already up double year over year. So then we basically increased 300 percent the night of, and it b- lasted through the subsequent week. I mean, it tailed off a little bit. The beauty of, of TV now versus TV 10 years ago is you'd get this huge spike at the beginning and then it would disappear immediately. Now the spike lives on. I mean, we still, something like 10, per, no, it's not 10. It's, it's lower. It's like 5% of our traffic today. We can still point at Shark Tank. Yeah. I mean, in the, this aired in November of last year. It re-aired in, in January of this year, but even then. Yeah. I mean, that's... But it's not even just the re-airs. It's the DVR now and the on-demand. You it's get this these nice streaming long systems. From- you, you got long tails. Yeah, so we we had... Over the course of the week following the airing, we can directly attribute an additional million dollars in revenue just to Shark Tank, and that's customer acquisition free, which is a, a beautiful thing. That that is awesome. Uh, so that clearly is valuable for being on the show. You raised some capital, which I assume um, you were able to invest wisely, um, and that's valuable. Um, an argument that sharks often make on the show is that they have special skills and they'll help the entrepreneurs. Uh, and so I'm always curious, like I've done some math. It's kind of funny. Uh, Mark has done a bunch of deals and he's like, Oh, well, we'll help you with your website and take care of all that. And, uh, uh has done a bunch of those. And basically they're putting people on Shopify and Magento. Which, yeah. If you don't know about that platform, yeah, there's, that, there's some value there, but, uh, that, but I get your yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so I, I'm curious, like to the extent you can say like, like, do you get intangible incremental benefit uh, from a, a shark investor versus, you know, like sort of anonymous money from a VC? Yeah, I mean, anytime from our standpoint, we're – and up until this point, we've had no investors or debt. So um, we've always looked at taking on capital as a means of taking on assets that go far beyond capital. What do we, you know, what is the person bringing to the table outside of just money? Cause we don't necessarily need the money that bad. And that was part of the pushback we got with going on shark tank. Um, as we, it was relatively apparent that we weren't there only for the money, which a lot of companies go there for cause they're about to die. Sure. Um, so each of them has a different skill set. Each of them has a different thing. They can, <clears throat> they can contribute teams of people they can contribute um, I can't really speak to them specifically. I mean, frankly, our deal is ongoing, so um, sure, sure, we don't have a ton of experience in working with them directly quite yet. But okay, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to follow, uh, and it certainly is a a fun story. Um, I want to turn though to <clears throat> what uh, is often an unfun part of this cool entrepreneurship, uh, which is the whole hassle around. Uh, knockoffs and protecting your IP. Um, and this came up on your episode even a little bit. Like yeah. it, it, uh, and I, I get that they film this long four hour thing and they edit it down to th- 30 minutes and, or how, like eight minutes or whatever. And yeah. it's, um, but like it almost seemed like you came on, you totally shocked them with your revenue run rates. 
um, and you have good margins, you have good unit economics. Um, and then they're like, well, how much are you netting? And it wasn't a huge number. And it took a while to figure out that like, oh, uh, we've been spending a fortune protecting our IP. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, in a consumer product world where you have to deal with patents and knockoffs, it's just a very unfortunate and mind-numbing part of the business, but it, it's part of reality. So we uh, we started to see knockoff products show up in on Amazon in 2015, late 2015. It exploded in 2016. And although we had patents filed, they were still pending. They weren't active, so you can't do anything about it. So you just watch this happen, which is brutal. Um, through that explosion in 2016, we, we had over a hundred companies on Amazon selling fake. They're not saying they're bottle keepers, so it's not counterfeit product, or at least Amazon takes that part really seriously. So we we're able to deal with that because of the trademarks and things that we had. But um, when our patent did go live in November of 2016, we had to get really, really, really aggressive with defending the brand. We had to make a decision. Were we going to grow more in top line and effectively in bottom line in 2017? Or were we, we going to take some money out of marketing and aggressively defend our brand. And we did the latter. We, you know, we're in this for the long run. We've spent a lot of time, you know, building what we, you know, very much believe in, in, in a consumer product brand. So we spent about a half a million dollars in 2017 in lawsuits, suing eight different companies um, and getting consent judgments and doing all these important things as part of a strategy that will, you know, they thought at least at the time that would put us in a position to better defend our patents moving forward, which worked in hindsight, worked really well, but it was really expensive. I mean, you can take in the, you know, when we're talking about that on the show, that half a million dollars we had to take out of our marketing budget. I mean, yeah. we, again, we had no investors or debt. We were growing on retained earnings. We're a cash flow business. So it had to come from somewhere. And the only place it could come from was, was marketing. So, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, so, and uh, I should have asked before, but were you already selling on Amazon prior to the counterfeiters or did the counterfeiters no, show we up on not. Amazon before you? They showed up on Amazon before us. Awesome. That's why we went on Amazon. Yeah, I was going to uh, – okay, so you're selling direct. Um, if I have this right, you filed a provisional patent uh, before you really started selling the product or yeah, early the, on? the provisional is something – and I, I said this earlier. I'll preface this that I'm not an attorney, so yeah. talk to your legal. But the provisional is something that you file that's kind of like a placeholder. It's an inexpensive patent. It lasts for a year. And it basically like puts your place in line if it ends up working out and you want to con you want to file a utility or a design or whatever patent on top of that. So we had a provisional in place. I mean, frankly, before Matt and I even came together and decided to do this, okay. we filed the utility patent in I think December of 2013, and it didn't go live until November of 2016. Yeah, so it's a really long period of time. Yeah, not fun either. Um, yeah. So also not an attorney on this side, uh, but like in general the. Super important thing about those patent filings is your filing date, right? And so, uh, you know, it costs a certain amount of money and, and uh, both filing fees, but also just to prepare a patent. Yep. Um, and so instead of spending all that money to file a full patent, you can, in fact, take this cheaper path, which is a provisional patent. But the provisional patent gives you that all-important filing date. Exactly. Um, so if you have a bunch of money, provisional patent's actually not a good idea. You should just go right for the well, patent and save the thousand bucks from the provisional I mean, patent. I, yeah. But even, but even then, but, if you're testing a new concept, as we come yeah. out with new stuff, sure. the first thing we do is file a provisional patent. That we're, makes not, sense. we're not sure it's going to work. I mean, our first sure. patent costs over $50,000 to prosecute over three years. Yeah. And that's not um, like a small. 
No, no, that's a huge Small investment. Money, yeah, um, so, so you get the date from this provisional. Yeah, that's conver- the important uh, part. Yeah, um, and then when it converts to a full patent application, it still retains the provisional's date. So that's the the whole point of the provisional patent. It's totally unpredictable how long the patent can issue, and it 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 comes down to a bunch of luck about the examiner you catch, and if there's a lot of questions, and um, if you have to do a lot of defense and, you know, do additional prior art and all this stuff. But, um, so you could issue in a year and you could issue per your point in five years or longer. Yeah. Uh, so in your case, uh, people saw you selling direct, knocked it off and started selling the knockoffs on Amazon under a different brand, um, before your patent had issued. Yeah. And, and the, the challenge there is that we're, heavily marketing bottle keepers, spending millions of dollars a year marketing bottle keeper on Facebook and all these other channels. So why we had to be there is because people were then going to Amazon searching for bottle keeper and all these knockoffs are coming up. So we had to be at the top of the list for obvious reasons. Yeah. So you had to show up in their search. Um, I won't make you say it, but many people would also say that a lot of the amenities that Amazon does offer for brand protection are easier easier to avail yourself of if you're a seller on Amazon. <laughs> um, so, like, frankly, a lot of people become sellers on Amazon specifically so they can do brand registry and and eventually get a rep and have some recourses for some of this IP. That, yeah, and it, the the kicker there is you, that doesn't happen until you get to a significant amount of scale. Yeah, which feels kind of oily, uh, comma, it's also, like, reputedly how it plays out on most of the international marketplaces. So, you know, if you're trying to be on Tmall, Alibaba, you know, again, has a lot more uh, IP protection tools when you're a seller than when you're sure. just a disinterested sure. third party. Of course. Um, so, uh, so that prompts you to move to the Amazon platform. Uh, so now you're paying a take rate <laughs> mm-hmm. on those same sales that you in the past would have captured direct, but presumably also exposes you to a bunch more customers so you may not have gone on Amazon for necessarily the best of reasons, but in hindsight, are you sort of neutral about being on Amazon? Like, do you feel like there is an a- economic advantage? Do you feel like it's a disadvantage or not prepared? To- oh man, how much time do we have? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll do I a think, long show I think for, if we're talking. If we, if we <laughs> look at the, from a consumer brand. If we look at the overall picture of what Amazon does for us as a consumer brand, I would call it negative. Um, You're right that we get exposure to new customers, but the problem with our product is it's really hard to sell in a still image. It's really hard for someone to look at it that doesn't know what it is and go, oh, I know what you do with that. You put a beer inside of it. So it's, you know, it's not like we're selling socks. I mean, and, and someone goes to Amazon looking for socks and we're one of the results that comes up and they love our socks. I mean, I wish it was... It was yeah. that, it was that simple. I mean, that'd be a beautiful thing, but unfortunately it's not. So the other challenging part is that the customer that purchase for, purchases from Amazon is Amazon's customer. It's not your customer. It's not our customer. We don't really know who that customer is. They don't get to experience any, any part of our brand in, in buying direct and the process and the funny copy and the follow-up emails that are super fun and engaging and personal, the thank you note. Every single customer that buys from our site gets from me personally. That comes from my address they respond to it. It comes to me and I respond to every single one of them. And that That's a really, really important part of our brand. That's how we get tremendous feedback. That's how we design our new products. Um, so we've, we're hoping with some of the things Amazon is, 
has put in place and you know, to give them credit, they have put in place a number of things that have been tremendously helpful, like the patent infringement portal and brand registry, which they just launched in the fall of last year. That has been tremendously helpful. But from a consumer brand standpoint, it's really, really, really hard to invest heavily in acquiring customers on Amazon when they're really not our customers. Sure. And you can imagine, like, if you think about it, there's two kinds of traffic that's hitting your PDP. Like, there's people that got exposed to your top of the funnel marketing activities off Amazon and saw one of your funny YouTube videos or the television ads you're now doing, which we'll get to in a minute, um, or all these other things. um, And, like, you already created an intent to buy. They go to Amazon and buy it instead of uh, to your website and, and buy it. And so it's lower margin. Uh, I didn't ask, but you're probably also uh, fulfilling via FBA and paying all those fees. And yeah, um, I mean, we actually mark the product up on Amazon. Okay, to be clear, so nice. to to cover those fees, number one, and also to give the customer incentive to come back and buy from our website. I like it, and that still gives you that visibility in search, um, but protects you from some of that margin erosion. Um, I, that's a great tactic. Um, if the product still converts at that high price, right? The problem is if when, you price it too high that no one buys it, then it actually doesn't show up in so search. It's, it's funny when, when we first launched the product, we launched it in one color, one size, and it didn't have the built-in opener. It wasn't powder coated, didn't have all the sort of bells and whistles that it now has. And as we launched colors and then went into Amazon, we did it with our, what we call our 1.0 product. That 1.0 product we were selling on our website for 20, for $19.99, $20. And we were selling it on Amazon for 25, but it was selling perfectly well on Amazon at 25, which was kind of that light bulb of, did we underprice our product? Yeah. And then as we launched new bells and whistles and things that came directly from feedback from our customers, we looked at that pricing model very differently and priced it well above what we thought would be reasonable and realized that we had not yet got to that pricing ceiling yet. And, and so I give credit to Amazon for, for helping us figure that out. That That is a, a terrific unintended benefit, I it guess. Um, but so you have that version of the traffic and that converts and it's great, but but again, we'd wrap, you don't get to meet that customer, all that thing. And then you have people that maybe didn't know they needed your product, discover it on Amazon. And per your point, when those people hit your PDP, they probably don't convert near as well because your, your storytelling and your, your sort of want to buy contact content on Amazon is less compelling than it is on your. Yeah. It's, it's significantly more limited. Yeah. Um, so, uh, now I want to pivot to another thing that I was actually expecting the sharks to beat you up about, and uh, at least in the ed- final edit, it, it you got a total pass on it. Um, you you mentioned what a boom uh, Facebook video ads for you were. Um, it sounds like at one point in your evolution, like you were you were very dependent on Facebook. That that was your primary marketing vehicle. Yeah, and I mean, even through today, we're still dependent on Facebook. We're just being very aggressive and diversifying that revenue model. Yeah, and per your point, um, early on, it's like as much capital as you have, you can buy more more profitable eyeballs from Facebook with that uh, that capital and your capital constraint. There comes a point, though, when the cost per eyeball starts going up as you have to buy broader and broader audiences and as Facebook just tries to monetize more and more and more. And so most advertisers would talk about their their CPMs or CPAs wildly going up over time and as they scale. And if that's your primary marketing vehicle, you, you have to worry that you're eventually going to hit some inflection point when like you can't keep growing the same way you were. 
Um, and so, like, what are you doing or what, ha- what are you trying to sort of diversify the, the customer acquisition from Facebook? And, oh, sorry, super long question. Uh, when we're saying Facebook, are we primarily talking about classic fo- Facebook or do you mean Facebook as sort of Facebook and Instagram? Uh, separate the two. Okay. So classically Facebook, we treat those two channels differently. Um, so looking, I mean, everything you just said is absolutely correct. The bigger you get, the harder it is to generate returns on Facebook. Now combined with that is the fact that today, you know, Facebook isn't growing like it used to grow, particularly domestically at least, which is where our main consuming audience is. And the number of marketers advertisers on Facebook is up significantly. I mean, anybody with a heartbeat can go in and create an ad account on Facebook and sell their wares. Even I could do it. Well, I could do it, which is says a lot. I mean, I figured it out. So, um, the, the kicker based, you know, simple supply and demand economics, you have at least flatlined supply and increased demand just gets more expensive. Coupled on top of that, we have, uh, Facebook removing a, a, pretty significant amount of targeting as a result of all the scandals and things that have come out, um, which just means it's more expensive for us to go and find that customer that we know exactly who that customer is. And if we can't target them based on these specifics, then, then we do have to, to your point, go broader, which just makes it more expensive naturally. So we're focusing heavily on, I mean, we do advertise on Instagram that doesn't convert. That's a great brand building, getting eyeballs tool, but hasn't historically converted real well for us. Um, we advertise in some capacity on all the socials. Pinterest has worked really well for us, particularly seasonally in and around Father's Day and Q4. Um, the one that uh, really surprised uh, me and our marketing team is TV. Um, TV is at a place where there's a lot of additional technology that wasn't there 10 years ago. Um, TV ad buying. So the technology is not only in being able to attribute a sale to somebody seeing a TV commercial on a specific channel, but it's also being able to buy the space on that channel. Now there are these live auctions that are all, you know, automated that uh, a really good TV buying company can go and get really inexpensive ad space on really good channels during great times of day that are in, you know, say the third position in a channel lineup or a commercial lineup instead of the first, but, but it's like $200 for an ad on Hallmark channel during the holidays, you know, this sort of thing, it can be really, really, really inexpensive when it's done correctly. And combining that with the fact we're doing all our own creative in house, we can crank out high quality creative and test the hell out of things before we need to go and put real budgets behind them. Um, and so it, would it be correct if I said like that you, there's this nice combination of there's way more inventory of television than there's ever been before. And there's, slightly less competition for that inventory. 100%. And so, yeah, so. I mean, as people are moving, you know, advertisers are moving more into the socials for the attribution. I mean, you can just get, it's just so much more clear. Um, TV gets less expensive. I mean, there's not necessarily less viewers. There's less linear TV viewers. But even in the in the digital streaming, advertising and digital streaming TV is great because you that's much easier to track that attribution. You just use IP matching. And that's crystal clear in the linear side where it's somebody, you know, sitting down watching direct TV or whatnot. Yeah. You, you kind of got to follow them a little bit. One of the ways that we've been successful at doing that is, is with a simple hear about us. How'd you hear about us in our, our checkout funnel and being really specific to the name of the channel in that don't just put like TV. Cause if you're advertising on 10 channels, you're not going to know which one's doing well. Cause some are going to do really well and some aren't like sure. any normal advertising channel. Yeah, I think it's the old uh, Wanamaker quote, half my ads are working, I just don't know which half. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, 
so uh, TV has been good. Um, the I also uh, heard a story that you were doing at least an outdoor pilot. Um, and so we like normally we'd call it digital outdoor, and that means you're buying like a a digital billboard or something. But you are buying a digital boat. Yeah, <laughs> this is uh, you know Mike Stembach and our head of marketing is really 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 smart guy. He's always coming up with these funny, interesting things to test and we love testing stuff. So we, uh, starting earlier this summer started testing a bottle keeper ad video that's on a digital screen on the side of a boat that just drives up and down the coasts, uh, namely in Florida and a couple other States, um, that has a, you know, I don't remember what five or 10% off discount code and it to try to help us track conversions. And it works really, really well. The challenge is scale. Like sure. most of these marketing things that work really well is getting to scale in it, but that was another pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah. And did the guy that pitched that happen to own a boat in like <laughs> Yeah, it was like this is this guy's boat. That's yeah. that's the downside of this is it's not like there's one company that does this. It's like Joe's boat in Miami, Jimmy's boat in Baton Rouge. Like it it's quite disparate, so you have to work with them individually. But yeah, it, it is an interesting uh, And eventually model. one of those boats is gonna hit a manatee and there's gonna oh, be God. all kinds of That'll be of, the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I hope that doesn't happen to you. <laughs> Me too. Uh so um so uh, lots of stuff in flight for customer acquisition. The other big change I heard is uh, you are now uh, at least piloting some retail. Yeah. So how, like, talk to us about how, like, how did you come to the, why weren't you in retail in the beginning? What changed that made sense for retail now and how's that sure. going? Yeah. You know, at the beginning um, from my prior 10 years in the medical world experience that was really labor intensive and really hard to manage. Um, at least from a logistics standpoint, there was lots of just stuff, people in multiple States and delivery vehicles and warehouses and all this stuff. So you couldn't get away from it. So when we started bottle keeper, the idea was to do the opposite of that. Let's, I think I said earlier, let's build a business around a lifestyle. The sort of like drop dead question when we looked at opportunities was, do we need to hire people to, to accomplish it? And if the answer was yes, then we just didn't do it. One of those things was retail. As we started, you know, murdering people, hammering stuff on Facebook with millions of dollars in advertising, retailers took note of that and they are start sending in inquiries and are interested in whether it's a big retailer or a small retailer, we didn't know what to do with them because we couldn't, we had just set that we're not doing this. You know, I was looking kind of at the GoPro model where they went completely direct to consumer for a long time. And by the time they went to retail, they got to make some you know, pretty decent demands because they had, they had the consumer. Yeah, yeah. They had way more leverage and that always made sense to me. And it sort of fit my, um, my operating model of let's do this without people. So, um, fast forward a couple of years, we, as pe- retailers were coming to the site, we were just saying, Hey, we're not ready yet, but join this wait list and we'll let you know when we are. So we had 3000 us retailers on a wait list. We had a significant, and, and the, the, how did you hear about us from the wait list was customers coming in and saying, why don't you have this, which is a really important piece owning the customer, which goes back to why it's challenging to do this on Amazon is a huge part of the puzzle. So come 2017, our patent infringement stuff gets largely cleaned up. Um, 2018, we see the writing on the wall with Facebook. We're starting to hit that point at which, you know, our, our yin and yang with expense and return is starting to get out of alignment. We're looking for other revenue models so that one, we were, we have historically been a pretty seasonal business. We do about a third of our revenue during Father's Day and half our revenue in the last six weeks of the year. So that gives us nine months of the year that we, you know, have low sales. We're losing money in some of those. Um, I mean, in, in, as we continue to grow, we're losing money in a lot of those. Um, and that's made up for in these other two seasons. So it just got to the point where retail, we had enough demand 
we needed to try to level out our revenues throughout the year and not be just so dependent on Facebook and our other social channels doing marketing. And so retail started to make sense. So we um, actually, this all started when a uh, sales, I mean, who's now our director of sales, this guy that had been in the the consumer space, retail space for a long time, uh, reached out blindly and said, Ace Hardware wants you. And one company that I will totally plug happily um, that we've always looked at as sort of a model of brand building done right is Yeti. They've done an amazing job building a brand on relatively limited amounts. I mean, I know they have a huge patent portfolio now, but early on they had a couple of patents and, um, and particularly with their drinkware lines and this sort of stuff, that stuff's hard to patent because stuff's been around for forever. Yet they build this following where people will go and spend 50 or $70 on a cup that you can buy for $5 literally anywhere else. And I mean, they just IPO, they're worth billions of dollars. Clearly that works for them. So Ace is a store that Yeti is heavily in. So that was the first big retailer that came to us and they were, you know, saying we, we want to work together. We want to sell your products that, and then it started to make sense. So we brought on this, uh, who's now our director of sales, who's awesome at what he does. Um, and started that conversation. We started opening up Ace locations. They have 4,000 or so domestic stores started opening that up in the fall of 2018. So by the end of the year, we had 200 or so stores, um, started expanding to a bunch of very select retailers. And as of the first six months of this year, we're in over 4,000 domestic stores. So we're, we're growing rapidly into retail. And now with launching new products and stuff, which is on our, our big pipeline, we get to add to those shelf, the shelf space that we now have. That is good. That is awesome. Uh, I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier on that, like the product really needs the video demonstration to sell. So one of the challenges of that retail shelf is, uh, your product actually looks a heck of a lot like a Yeti water bottle. Yeah, sure. Um, on that on that shelf, like, if, are you thinking about, or have you experimented with any like video POP or anything to try to tell that story in retail? Or so that- this was this was a huge consideration in launching into retail. My nightmare is that bottle keeper ends up in the hydration aisle of a store, sitting with all the other water bottles. It will get lost. Yeah. So the benefit of having a bit of leverage and going into the retailers that are saying, please, please, no, I'm not, I don't mean to oversell it, but they wanted the product and we had enough leverage to be able to say, okay, well, you can, you can have it if you do these couple of things. And one of those is use our merchandising that we created that, I mean, our counter display has a physical bottle keeper unit broken open on it, like glued to the front of this wood display. So you can't miss what this product is. Awesome. So like they have to use that though. That's part of the the kicker. Yep. And is it, uh, like, do you try to get it merchandised in the beer section? Is that, it, the best it depends point? Where on the it store. I mean, our, again, our sort of no go oh, zone maybe is, doesn't is have hydration. Beer, but. Yeah. It <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, but, yeah. um, in, in, in certain stores. Yeah. I mean, we have like Meyer is a great, uh, you know, high end grocer that's perfect to be in the beer in the beer section. Um, you know, a couple of sets of whole foods, all these like, places that have great beer collections. It, it works really well there. Awesome. Um, the, I forgot to ask, uh, international. So are you guys selling much international now? Is that in the expansion? It is a big plans? part of the expansion. We have, we actually physically launched into Australia in 2015, which oh, is a really good learning experience. Didn't think about that, but that's pro- like one of your criteria would be, where is it hard to keep beer cold? Yeah. And Australia versus yeah. a lot of the other like places. Like Greenland, you can probably not as high on the yeah, list. Yeah. UK is not <laughs> quite up there either, but I mean, Australia, it's hot. Most of the population lives on the coast. They like beer. Yeah. They speak English. You know, it, it made sense to do that. Really good learning experience. It, you know, we, 
sold physically there out of a warehouse that we um, contracted and had a physical presence there. Learned quickly that their uh, Amazon doesn't have quite the hold there that they have here. So consumers aren't quite trained up on uh, e-commerce. So having a physical presence there is really, really important. So we're in the midst of working with distributors to go the more traditional retail route as well as I mean, a bunch of different countries. So yes, is the really long answer to sure. your question. And internationals, uh, I guarantee, I'm sure you're ahead of me on this one, but uh, one of the sucky things is, of course, all that IP work you did in the U.S. You now have to start thinking about duplicating times, well, times potentially a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's you know the the downside at the very beginning of the company of not going and raising a bunch of money is that when it came time to file patents. I mean, filing patents in all jurisdictions is phenomenally expensive. And yeah. so there are some places that we just don't have coverage. We just have to rely on the fact that, you know, certain countries really enjoy using American brands and yeah. kind of hope and pray that that holds up for as long as, as it uh, can. For sure. Um, and so uh, we're getting we're running up on time. I want to pivot to the last topic, uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out one of the funniest things of the day. So you were uh, funny only to me, um, but you were on a, a panel um, at Etail on sort of uh, founder stories. Um, and so there were like three, three great founders that ha- you each had sort of a wildly different um, yeah. story that you all shared. And I feel like there's actually a bunch of useful, practical learnings that the audience probably got from all three of you. Um, But the one thing that all three of you had in common that it seemed like there was violent agreement on um, was that you should do all this marketing and content creation in-house and that agencies uh, don't work very well. And I don't know if you know this, but I work for a giant agency. Okay. (laughs) So I'm laughing. Uh, I'm thinking of my French overlords uh, listening to this podcast, and they're like, nice, TV is coming back. We have 120,000 people that know how to produce great TV. And then the next thing is, but... Uh, it's now uh, easy enough and there's a bunch of uh, significant benefits to do it in-house, which I would totally agree with, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to get that out there for all my coworkers listening to the oh, show. That's great. <laughs> um, uh, I think the takeaway was agency suck was kind of the... <laughs> no, I, my, my takeaway would be that there's, there's a time and we've used agencies re- multiple points throughout our growth. There's a time and a place... Um, and even today we are TV buying, we're not doing our TV buying internally. Like it would be impossible for us to do that. So we still do use agencies in uh, a couple parts of our business. No, I, t- I totally get it. I just thought it was funny. So yeah. I'm having fun with it. Well, uh, the other guy, Adam really got into that one. So yeah, you can yeah. blame him. <laughs> he, it sounds like a couple of the other guys had had some like particularly bad rebranding experiences, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. not hard to imagine. Sure. Um, so pivoting forward, you put your future hat on and you're imagining, uh, 2025 Adam, um, what does the world at Bottle Keeper look like? Have you like dramatically expanded product lines? Have you like sold this business to somebody and you're living on a beach um, with like a concierge to bring you cold beer so no. you don't care anymore? Like, what's the? I mean, the, the, yeah, we're not we're not even remotely close to where I would you know think of the acquisition time. There's a lot of stuff we want to accomplish, and uh, we're certainly in it for the long haul. I mean. You know, we we spend a lot of time internally. Part of the downside of naming the company after your first product is launching your second product becomes kind of interesting. So we spend a lot of time internally uh, being able to better articulate why we as a business are doing this, why is we we as a group of people are coming in and, and doing all this stuff every day. Um, and as we get to better articulate that, um, which we are getting a lot better at articulating that, that will allow us to expand into other verticals, um, that I can't even imagine today. I mean, again, looking at Yeti, they're a good example. They started as a cooler and now they sell a dog bowl. 
Yep. Like an expensive dog bowl. Yeah. So that took 10 years to get to that or whatnot, but, but yeah. there's a, there's a lot of, we have a lot of room for growth. Yeah. It's a crazy story. Like the, you know, they, eight years ago, they were primarily a super expensive cooler manufacturer that was like known in certain niches. Today, they have this like super powerful brand and this great broad line of products. And people are like, wow, overnight success. You did all this stuff in five to eight years. They're a 23 year old company. Yeah, it was definitely not five to eight years. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, like, it, it's the age old story. Everybody's overnight success 20 years in. Of course. <laughs> it's yeah. it's kind of the sad thing. Um, well, listen, Adam, I've super enjoyed talking to you, uh, but this is going to be a great place for us to leave it because uh, it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, but if listeners have any burning questions or comments and they want to continue the dialogue, uh, they're totally welcome to join our Facebook page uh, where you will see a lot of Bottle Keeper ads. I did some research for the show, and your retargeting is now stalking me. Perfect. Like every, ev- everywhere Mwah. I go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I'm a good guy, so I click on every one of those ads for you. Okay. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for you. Yeah. Um, maybe I should buy a product after I click on that. I don't know if that would be yeah, better. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, we would love that. As always, if you enjoyed this show, please give us that five-star review on iTunes. Um, Adam, if people are inspired by the show and want to get in touch with you, like, what's the best way to, to reach you? Um, I mean, you can find me on Twitter, Adam underscore Callanan, although I will tell you in advance, I don't use it a whole lot, much to my had a PR chagrin. Um, I mean, our bottle keeper accounts are the best way. We're, okay. we're still a small team. You know, we're super connected. So if something comes through that, I'll definitely hear about it. Awesome. I will list those social accounts in the show notes. And uh, Adam, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks very no, much for it. making the time. Super fun. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 